Hello and welcome to episode 179 of the Live to Walk Again podcast. My name is Jeremy Dixon, your host as always, and with me today I got both of the guys on Zoom, Ricardo Benavides and Brandon Stevens. Guys, welcome, welcome in. How you doing? Zoom, what's up Zoom? What's up Ricardo? What's up Jay? Hey guys, I'm doing great, Brandon. Good, good to hear Ricardo. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, (laughs) If you could listen, like, rate, review, share the podcast, we would appreciate it all. Uh, We have kind of a special, special edition today. I don't know what you want to call it. Um, You know, we had Devin Colbert reach out uh, to me. He is uh, the retired Garland, Texas firefighter. Uh, He's an amateur neuroscientist, spinal cord injury survivor, husband and father. Um, And he this whole like basically he heard something on i think on joe rogan way back um right after he got injured about how uh there's these different enzymes and molecules in uh i guess in psilocybin like magic mushrooms that people think could reconnect you know the the neurons the axons things like that with your spinal cord injury it gets things firing um you know makes especially with somebody with a spinal cord injury it gets you spasming and and all these different things are happening so he's been really like diving into this and and trying to participate in uh in studies and get studies put out to uh to to test these uh this psilocybin to see how that all goes and he connected with uh, Dr. David W. McMillan, who is a research assistant professor uh, at the Department of Neurological Surgery at the University of Miami and director of education and outreach at the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis. Um, you know, a couple of mm-hmm. uh, places that we're, we're big fans of. And uh, so we had kind of just a roundtable discussion about like what Devin's been working on, what Dr. McMillan has has seen and and uh, been a part of um, studying over his the course of his career, and uh, I guys felt like the dumbest person in the room by far. Like I know I didn't do a whole lot. Well, of that's talking. the. <laughs> I did not do a whole that's... lot of talking in this episode. Um, I was I was just. Yeah, like these guys blew blew my mind. So um, I think it's a lot of like, there's a lot of really great information though. Um, these guys are both very, very smart individuals that know what they're talking about. There are some uh, some technical issues. Uh, Ricardo made the point that he thinks we should just leave everything in because like, you know, we I think we lost Devin a couple of times. Um, and, but but Dr. McMillan was still giving some good information during those portions. So don't really want to cut anything out just in fear of uh, losing anything that might be, uh, might be beneficial for somebody to hear. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the thing is, is um, they cautioned several times that this is um, information sharing, right. And what's going on, like we do on these podcasts all the time. But if you're going to go do this, um with mushrooms that you should do it uh very cautiously and not alone so um because there's all kinds of risks associated with it and um 
Yeah, I didn't realize they've... about the, the overheating thing. Um, yeah, I know. Yeah. I, do, I do know if I have a, a friend that Brandon also knows um, that had a who has a spinal cord injury that had a uh, an episode, I guess, and they got really hot and uh, basically like kind of took too many mushrooms and um, had a very bad reaction. Uh, and they had been doing them quite a bit and like had never had something like this happen, but got too hot. And like, basically they took him to the ER, packed him in ice for like two days to try to cool his core temperature down. Cause it just got way too hot. Um, which, which is scary, you know, dangerous. Yeah, super scary. yeah. Dangerous to say the least. Yeah. So, but you know what it got me thinking about, cause I've got glaucoma, you know, I'm a lot older than you guys. Um, but I was wondering, boy, I wonder if some of this nerve regeneration stuff could work on your eyes, you know? So, cause that's yeah. what it's all about. Well, that's, that's interesting because I mean, I think it was the, uh, the five H cells or whatever that, that the mushrooms were having effects on. I didn't understand that the same ones that are in your brain or are the same ones that are in your spinal cord. Yeah, what they were explaining, which was pretty interesting. The other thing is, is if you're gonna if you're gonna be experimenting with psilocybin, so how do you say that, Jeremy? Psilocybin. Psilocybin. Yes. Yeah. See, in my day, we did just call them magic mushrooms, and, and you know, we didn't really have a way to gauge how much we were taking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're talking about a macro dose, and shoot, they were he was talking about taking, you know, seven grams of mushrooms. And in my mind, I was thinking a hero dose. Well, you know, if you're just taking dry mushrooms, definitely don't advise taking seven grams because like he said, you don't really have the ability to um, gauge the potency potency of that and how much, how much grams of psilocybin you're actually getting. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think well, and any more. I mean, we live in Washington State, and is it legal here now, or no? No. Okay. Well, I mean, they they grow abundantly here, so right. they've never been. I don't think it's they've right. ever been legal, but they've also never been illegal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you can get your hands on them here. Um, but yeah, like I know Colorado, they're they've legalized psilocybin and and hallucinogenics, and maybe in Oregon, I don't know, a few few states, I think of have done that and i'm sure it'll it'll start going around the country because i think these can be very useful tools for a lot of things um you know dealing with with anxiety i'm sure like dealing with uh yeah they touched on that they touched on that but what was really fascinating was one of the fascinating things in this whole conversation was the um number of the dog study with the canines right and how they started um doing this for dogs but they didn't injure any dogs these were dogs that were injured you know however they were injured you know being pets all different kinds of breeds all kinds of uh different circumstances different ages and how some of them started uh ambulating again right after yeah so that i found very interesting um and um this 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 episode probably ranks in like my top five all-time favorite episodes jeremy i'm not gonna lie yeah and 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 like i was saying jeremy this is um 
I think this is what this podcast is about, is about hooking people up with information, uh. sharing it. And, you know, if anybody else is out there doing um, anything like this, we'd like to hear from you and maybe get your results on the podcast and start moving forward with these types of things to help people with spinal cord injuries. Yeah, yeah because maybe maybe eventually what you need to do is, you know, the, the real way to get things done, especially when you're talking about research and medicine or laws, is you have to take it to the people that, that will change those things, right? And so the stories need to be heard. And if we can spread that, then maybe we can get that to into the hands of the people that can actually make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, people with spinal cord injuries are the ones that are going to find the the well, not the cure but the um but the the things that's going to make it work for everybody right that's you know they're going to connect because they're the ones that have you know skin in the game quotes right mm -hmm. right so they're the ones that are willing to take calculated risks to improve their lives mm. Well, let's uh, let's get to the the interview, um, the discussion. I don't really want to call it an interview because I didn't do much. I just uh, let these guys talk, and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Let's get to that. We'll uh, we'll talk briefly on the other side. It's kind of a long one, so I think it's a little over fifty minutes. And uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Um, like I said, we there's some technical issues, but we just don't want to lose anything in in the edit. So uh, we'll talk to you guys on the other side. This week on the Live to Walk Again podcast, we have a special episode. We we have two two guests on this show. Uh, returning uh, returning champion Devin Colbert, uh, retired Garland firefighter, uh, amateur neuroscientist, uh, spinal cord injury survivor, husband, father, uh, and Doctor David W. McMillan, who is a research assistant professor in the Department of Neurological Surgery. Uh, at the University of Miami Medical Center and Director of Education and Outreach at the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Uh, Dr. McMillan, why don't you uh, kind of start off this kind of roundtable discussion we're going to have? Hey, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Jeremy, Devin, and dear listeners. Apologies to the listeners for my poor microphone quality. My mic just broke. Uh, here we are. Here we are. Um, I, I thank you, Jeremy, for, um, accepting my unsolicited invitation to come and talk on your show. Um, and really it was in response to, uh, to Devin and, and his work. Um, and there's a previous episode. I would, uh, advise all of the listeners to go and, and take a listen to that where Devin outlines a, a thesis that he has, um, as, uh, self-proclaimed um, hobby neuroscientist and as director of education and outreach um, at a neuroscience center of excellence, I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to um, invite uh, the world or, or whoever finds this link to listen to what it might look like for a scientist to go through this conversation with uh, someone like Devin. Um, and one of my favorite things I'll just say about working with people with spinal cord injuries is uh, the authentic, um, obviously there's skin in the game, but also just very open curiosity that these 
types of people tend to develop for topics in neuroscience. Um, so this is probably, you know, going to be something that uh, happens in a lot, hopefully, of academic medical centers like mine. So, um, yeah, you want to uh, dive us into it, Devin, uh, with a little bit of uh, uh, your background. And then from there, we can get into the, the thesis. Uh, yes, Dr. McMillan, thank you very much for um, for that uh, uh, that honor of just all of that. I, I greatly appreciate all that. Um, so, yeah, I was injured back in uh, December of 2012 uh, in a car accident. I suffered a, a step off at the C5 level and then it left me about a C4, C5 uh, quadriplegic. Um, did two years in uh, rehab. The guys at the uh, fire station worked for me, uh, covering all my shifts, allowed me to do two years of rehab, kind of gain uh, – you know, we were told that there's a window in that first two years to get back as much as you can. And then after that, that's kind of where you're going to find yourself at. Um, and so uh, went back to work, went to work in the uh, fire marshal's office, uh, spent a lot of time behind the computer. And during that time, I kind of kept track on, uh, you know, just different therapies and everything that were coming out. Uh, Schwann cells, stem cells, um no go, uh, Axer 241, um, mm -hmm. you know, all these different things coming out. And, You're really uh, keeping track. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, I, I uh, you know, because there, there's a lot out there. And, um, uh, when I was eight years old, I had a friend whose dad was in a chair and he told me that science was only 10 years away from having people out of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, 20 years later, you know, I find myself in a chair and now here I am 10 years after the fact, uh, you know, kind of saying the same thing. But uh, spent a lot of time behind the, the computer, keeping up with everything. And um, during that time, I kept my eye on chondroit and ACBC. And um, towards the end of my career, when I was getting ready to uh, retire, I started looking into I heard Paul Stamets talking about the neuroregenerative effects of mushrooms and psilocybin mm -hmm. and everything. Mm -hmm. and so uh, I knew that there was um, some science coming out about using mushrooms and everything for PTSD, anxiety, depression, and things like that. And um, uh, I've, uh, you know, I've always dealt with mental health issues, depression and things of that nature. And mm -hmm. uh, also, PTSD dealing with the car accident and then also, you know, just a career of, of uh, you know, firefighting. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to look into, um, what this, you know, what they're talking about as far as the mental health aspect of this goes. So, um, I tried them, uh, I tried some mushrooms, uh, ended up doing seven grams, um, wonderful experience uh it was probably one of the most uh profound uh experiences i've ever had um really helped me deal with a lot of different issues and then even continuously now um that was only my one big experience with mushrooms in that aspect uh in that dose level um but before my actual experience happened uh the the psychedelic effects and everything um I don't deal with spasms normally. I, I'm not on any kind of uh, 
I don't take any antispasmatics, no gabapentin, um, <laughs> nothing like that. And so, uh, usually if I have any spasms, it's in relation to if something's going on, you know, some sort of AD, um, uh, effect of that nature. Uh, but before the psychedelic experience kicked in, um, my body started to spasm from my injury level down. Hey, uh, boom. Devin, can I stop you there? Yes. Because I think this is going to be an anchor in this conversation. Okay. And for, for all of the listeners, this right here is an opportunity to learn something really important. If you're someone living with a spinal cord injury, you should know that this is something that most likely will happen if you ingest these substances. If you are a care provider and you have patients with spinal cord injuries asking you about these substances, you should report this adverse event to them that is anticipated. If you are a practitioner of the medicine, um, you should know that if you find a client that you will sit with and they have paralysis, something like this could happen. This is a really important opportunity for us to just tell the community about something that is underreported. It's really important. Okay, awesome. All right, Devin, but if we if we pause right here and then we're going to get back to the spasticity. Um, and we start with chondroitinase. Was there something that led you to chondroitinase? Did it seem different than other substances? Was it, you know, oh, the so, cool ABC uh, in the name? Like, was it? <laughs> no, no, no. It, it was just, um, I guess it was the 2017 study uh, with Dr. Nick Jeffries, Texas A&M and the University of Iowa. Uh, they came out, they did. And, and again, I, I didn't really understand um, back then whenever I first read this study. Um, it wasn't until much further on in my my research that I understood like what a CSPG was, a conjoint mm. sulfate proteoglycan. Mm. And so with those, um, you know, I, I, and again, I'm, I'm by no means, uh, I'm still learning all of this stuff. Um, you know, I read, uh, neurobiology for dummies. Um, and I got different kinds of books, you know, trying to, uh, um, better equip myself. So in that way, when I do try and explain this to researchers like you, y'all have a better understanding. I'm not just saying, Oh, this guy, he's just kind of explaining it to me, but you know, doesn't really understand it. So you sound pretty convincing when you said CSPG. So <laughs> oh, thank you. So, um, but yeah, it wasn't, until I learned about CSPGs. Oh, but back to this, uh, this study. So this study was, um, it was done on 60 different dogs and these dogs were chronically injured and these were household pets. So it's not like they injured these pets for this study. Uh, so finding 60 dogs in the first place was probably hard to, for them to do. Um, but it was a placebo control. So 30 of the dogs received chondroitin ACBC caudal uh, at the site of uh, injury and caudal to the site of injury. Uh, and then the other ones received, uh, I believe it was just a, a saline injection, injection. I can't remember. Mm, um, they pierced the skin, but, but not the spinal cord for the control. Uh, y yes, it was uh, right at the... Um, yeah, went to the skin, but not into the spinal cord, just yep. right at there. So, yep, yep. Um, okay, good. Keep going. So, 
out of those 30 dogs uh, that received the chondroit nace, I believe it was a 60 day follow up, they saw an increase in coordination in forelimb and hind limbs of up to 23%. And 10 dogs, so three of them actually were able to start self ambulating again. Um, one of the main side effects out of both of those was just diarrhea, and that could have just been due to, you know, diet or anything else like that. But out of that, I mean, you're talking 10% out of 30 dogs, 10, three dogs, 10% is huge to start self-ambulating. So that right there, that was promising to me. Um, and just seeing like, okay, just in, in a reduction of what the scar tissue, so-called scar tissue is, you know, you're not trying to replace anything right now with uh, stem cells or Schwann cells. You're just trying to take away the inhibitory factor at that. And so. And so, sorry, I don't, mean, I don't mean to interrupt, but so you said these were all chronically injured dogs? Yes, these are all chronically injured dogs due to different, um, 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 different diseases or, you know, different factors or anything like that. So these weren't. Hey, it wasn't a controlled, like, uh, you know, drop a, a weight from 14 millimeters, you know, breaking the spine in a particular manner. These were all <laughs> different. Um, these were all different injuries, but they were all dealing kind of with the same thing. Uh, yeah. So, Jeremy, will. this is a key point, though. So, Devin, where did you first come across this study? And then we'll come back to the, the duration of injury. Uh... Google? Is it a news? Okay. No. No, 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 no. I, I went and I found it was a, it was a publication um, through uh, uh, University of Iowa, but then I also reached out to Nick Jeffrey himself and spoke with him mm -hmm. uh, on a couple of different occasions, and uh, he emailed me the PDF. Awesome. Okay. But if, if it's possible, you would have seen this in the news, and in a Google search algorithm, there would be a reason – for you not using specific key search terms like, you know, uh, canine and um, chondroitinase ABC, this would still come toward the top because a lot of people were really excited about this paper. And Jeremy, one yeah. of the reasons, which is one of the things you're getting at here, that from a scientific standpoint may, may seem like it's, it's uh, uh, less controlled is actually a clinical opportunity here. So the fact that all these animals were different durations post-injury, they were actually different breeds, different mechanisms of injury, that's going to overlap with what we see with human patients. So actually, these were done in veterinary clinics. I think it was three. It was at least two veterinary clinics um, in two different continents, which is great. So you're a bunch of different animals, but well, no, I'm being same, same, they're all dogs, but a bunch of different breeds, bunch of different places and still we're seeing a signal come through so with across that much heterogeneity when we see a signal people get excited so i will just say that the fact that they used in a in a well-controlled study um uh um uh that they saw results like this is one of the reasons people were were stoked so okay yeah, and, and whenever I spoke with Dr. Jeffrey, too, um, it was he said that it was something to do with the outcome measure, uh, that that's why they didn't gain too much traction was just because that there was a particular outcome measure that it just, he said, it just didn't come across 
really mm-hmm. big on uh, paper or whatnot. Yeah, sure. Um, so, if, you know, I think if you tell me the word yeah. coordination, yeah, you use that word because you're careful, Devin. You're careful with your language, which is why I know that you have a scientific worldview. Um, but that word limb coordination doesn't yes, hit me. First of all, right. it's, not, it's not a validated behavioral scale of ambulation. Um, right. And and we work with those a lot. Like, let's say in rodents, there's this thing known as the BBB. You probably came across that in your writing. Yes. Right? Awesome. So limb coordination is not one of those that has just gained right. widespread acceptance in the field. We all know what limb coordination is. but And if, let's say, we were in a clinical setting and you were to tell me that there was a gain in function or a gain in strength, those would be words that I would um, say that an FDA indication might be something like uh, this device, drug, or biologic to increase upper extremity motor function, upper extremity motor strength. An indication most likely in spinal cord injury is not going to be assigned for upper extremity motor coordination. So it's a nuanced outcome that is probably generally perceived as being less impactful. Um, But you did bring up that three out of 30 of the patients, the animals in the paper, they do refer to them as patients in the chondroitinase ABC group um, became independent ambulators. I'm not sure what that means. They don't describe it super well in the paper, but I'm guessing they could at least stand and walk if maybe enticed to do so. And they might just do so spontaneously because they want to. So, yeah. Cool. And so, you know, that was, that was kind of my thing. It was, okay, if you can degrade that, at least now you're taking away some of that inhibitory, um, you know, cells or whatnot to at least allow the environment to regrow something. Yeah, um, okay. So, so for so the that, listeners here, for the listeners, though, you brought up those CSPGs before, right? Uh, yes. All right. Yeah, so I believe I have. Yeah, and in the previous episode, you brought them up as well, which everyone's going to go and listen to. But to to set the stage, after an injury, what could happen, the most likely thing that could happen after a physical um, uh, insult to a spinal cord is that a bunch of cells are damaged. Every cell is wrapped in a thing we call a membrane. And the membrane makes sure that the insides are the insides and the outsides are the outsides. And there can be a difference in the chemical uh, concentrations across that membrane. All of the inside of the cell goes into the outside. If there's any living cells around that thing, the insides of that one cell are going to signal to whatever living cells are there. And there's a bunch of stuff that's probably going to make it not good for the cells around them. Also, there's just going to be a lot of bleeding because a lot of capillaries rupture. So the most likely situation is that when you get an insult to one part of the cord, it's going to spread this chemical chaos above and below that, that insult. And you could just get a lot of damage and death to cells. So one of the things that evolution has teased out is to create what, Devin, you called a scar. So there's yes. a specific subset of cells that are pre-existing in the spinal cord. They're already there. They scurry over. So they're resident, as are the terms we use, and they scurry over, they migrate to the injury site. And when they get there, they set up a bunch of stuff, including these CSPGs, the chondroitin sulfase proteoglycans, which is one of the chemical characteristics of that scar. The scar in general is generally referred to like 
in the broadest sense as a fiber optics car. The CSPGs are part of the, the, the components of that. Okay, so if you break down the scar, maybe then things that are trying to grow can grow through. Cool. Well, and that, that, that was kind of where, uh, so kind of jumping back forward to whenever I had the spasms with the, uh, the mushrooms, I, uh, I kind of freaked out at first because I'd, I'd never done mushrooms before, um, you know, never really smoked marijuana or anything like that. Uh, so, you know, all this stuff was new to me. So, so Devin, real my, quick, real quick. I, yeah. just, uh, I was wondering, so you said that, that you generally only have gotten spasms when you're having um, mm. a, a dysreflexic issue going on. Um, did you feel like any kind of like that headache or like your blood pressure rising after, like while you were having these spasms after taking the mushrooms or was it just like, random muscle spasms with no pain or anything related to them yeah so that there was there was no pain related to them no jump in like there was nothing that signaled to me like this was an ad um uh episode um it was just it, it kind of started like right up my nipple line and then my mm -hmm. uh, my stomach uh the muscles in my stomach really started to, to go. Um, and then all the way down to my toes, it, I mean, just the spasms was like, Oh my gosh, uh, I ate some really bad mushrooms. I'm going to die now. So, Oh um, my goodness. Well, cause I'd never experienced spasms of course. like this before. And so, yeah. and, uh, and even if you were to Google it, you probably wouldn't have found much except a couple Reddit posts that you might get spasticity, which is why this is really important. We're talking about it, but yeah. Okay. Keep going. Ex exactly. And so, um, and so then uh, I called somebody. I was like, hey, has this ever happened to you? They're like, you're going to be fine, everything like mm. that. Went on my whole trip and everything. But then it was the next day that I was like, why didn't my body spasm? I was like, what was it about this that made my body spasm? That's kind of what sent me down this whole rabbit hole and so i started doing um you know just an injury right then that's when i started learning about the 5-ht receptors 5-ht1a you know the seven different families 14 different subfamilies and uh and then that's where i learned that they're that uh the hallucinogenic effects like well then i came to learn that those receptors are responsible for uh, all throughout your body, locomotion, uh, uh, nociception, anti-nociception, bladder control, bowel function, sexual functions, everything like that. Um, but then uh, specifically like 1A, 2A, and 2C following an injury, um, those get kind of, I guess, reprogrammed, if you will, for uh, – muscle spasticity and functional motor recovery. And so I figured that since I'm not getting the serotonin input from the brainstem, the, the raphi nuclei, because of my injury, that I was I was um, eliciting this response, the serotonin system from the gut system, you know, because that's where I guess 90% of our serotonin is made within our gut system. And so my thought was is now I'm, I'm eliciting a response both above and below the injury level. So that's where I'm going to try and regrow those nerves through those, uh, 
the cells or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was from that muscle spasticity. I figured, okay, well, if I'm if I'm eliciting muscle spasticity, then I should be eliciting the the latter of that, the functional motor recovery as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, okay, if, if if we can say uh, this though, so Devin, you made the jump, right? Chondroitinase ABC might make it so that something could get through the scar. I'm putting the scar in quotes, right? And then you accidentally yes. discovered something that seemed to be increasing general activity. So you're both reducing an inhibition and increasing an excitation with this combination approach. Yes, sir. And so, and then I, then also with these spasms, the more I noticed them too, the, the, the more I recognized that it was more, it was a, a, eliciting a response of the the central pattern generator in the spinal cord so and again this these are all kind of uh dose dependent um i usually take 100 milligrams daily and what that helps me with is i'll notice small spasms but that helps me also with my upper body mobility um it helps me with my um my core having um better posture and everything like that uh, helps me regulate my blood pressure a little bit more. Um, and th- these are all my findings, um, things that it, it has helped me with. Totally. Um, uh, my pain levels are severely decreased um, from the neuropathic pain aspect. And, and it is through all this that um, all of these receptors, uh, the same receptors, these 5-HT receptors, that it's a... Uh, psilocybin's ability to bind to them and then also to the functional selectivity of the uh, the receptors themselves so Mm -hmm. it it was a thought of like you said take away the scar tissue the inhibitory process um elicit the response in the spinal cord uh and then just try and put the two together by also uh incorporating physical therapy as well (laughs) this is because quip is Quipazine is an SSRI from the 70s, and it's a uh, it's a 5-HT uh, agonist as well. And it was used to elicit uh, locomotion um, in the therapy setting. Uh, hmm. I think it was in the uh, – I'd had to there, – there's uh, quite a few different papers about it. Sure. Okay, so just for the listeners here, though. So this is what we call a combinatorial approach, right? And you have combinations of basically making more of the good stuff while taking away, uh, having less of the bad stuff, right? Yes. Imagine the number of possible combinations. It's amazing. Oh. The number of different things that could be poured. I'm saying this now, like in an experimental sense that could be poured onto a spinal cord to make it less excitable. The number of potential things that could be put, into a spinal cord to make it more uh, permissive. Um, so that's less of the bad stuff, right? Um, yes. Holy smokes. It is amazing to imagine. It's practically not infinite, but technically, mathematically, there's an infinite number of combinations. Um, oh, yes. So, I mean, so one of... Wait, sorry, Devin. Uh, my apologies. Uh, I was talking about Jerry Silver's PTP Sigma blocker. What is that? The uh, Axer 204? Mm, mm, mm. 
So yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can we can go through all of all of the combinations, right? But I think this is just one thing for the listeners to consider that scientists are thinking about. And one of the reasons that things don't go as fast, Evan, you brought it up 10 years before you got your injury, you were hearing that your buddy in a chair was going to get cured. And 20 years after your injury, you're still hearing 10 more years and we'll get there, right? It's this infinite combinatorial space plus the insane complexity of the central nervous system of a mammal um, mm-hmm. that makes it so that there's just a lot of work to be done. Okay. I wanted to say that. All right. Going back though, there's one time that you took a full dose. We might call it a flood dose. Yes. Like the seven grams. Yeah. Okay. With that experience. And then you brought up before that right now that these substances uh, culturally termed psychedelics, I'm going to make an emphasis that we're talking about the ones that have some type of serotonin action, which means they act on the 5-HT receptors that you brought up. Those are commonly known as serotonin receptors. They're in the news for something right now. And it's their effect on the brain. It's their effect mm-hmm. on mental health. And most most of the studies are saying right now that they have to have an effect on consciousness, your acute conscious state. You have to go from a standard state of consciousness to an altered state of consciousness to a higher state of consciousness under the influence of these substances. It has to be paired with some type of guided talk therapy. There has to be integration processes before and after the session that is uh, done with the substance. And when you have that altered state of consciousness and that higher state of consciousness, then you can have some effect on mental health. Okay, if we stop there, we've known since the 1960s that the same receptors that these substances act on in the brain exist on neurons in the spinal cord. So, Devin, you brought that up. The 5-HT1, the 5-HT2, the 5 right? These are all different types of receptors. They exist in the brain and on the spinal cord. So I just think it's really important for the listeners to consider that if you hear the term psychedelic medicine and spinal cord injury, it might be a completely separate non-psychiatric indication that has very little to do with when you hear that term used in the general population. Yet people with spinal cord injuries also might want to use these substances in the context of their mental health. Most of the current indications that clinical trials are seeking for these substances those indications that the diagnosis have been shown to be uh, increased prevalence in people with spinal cord injury. Um, but there's also something else that's happening in the cord itself, and these substances might be able to act on these functions that are specific to spinal cord injury, that are somatic, that don't have so much to do with consciousness, and a reason why we might want to pursue that in this field uh, in a way that's being done differently than in other fields. And Devin, you came to the point where you said, no, no, it's not the flood dose that I need. It's So that's one big dose. It's a m- more consistent microdose approach. Uh, am I am I saying that correctly? And also, Devin, you might be frozen, just if, if we might edit this out. But Jeremy, you getting that too? Yeah, his, his picture's frozen. Can you still hear us, Devin? Yeah, it looks like he. It might be a bandwidth thing because he he cut up a couple times for me. Yeah, he did for me as well. Um, okay, okay, that was both of us. I can cut this out. Um, yeah, yep. Yeah. And you might just go if he goes camera off. It can help with the bandwidth a lot if he's in like a bad internet area. You might just advise him on that when he comes back. 
Although it does help to talk to someone if you can see them. Yeah, I tried. I tried shutting his video off, but it's he's yeah, not, yeah, yeah. He's not bouncing back. Um, wonder if I can like push him out of the room and then he can. Yeah, can you boot him and then he'll have to like click or whatever. Yeah, I'll put him in the waiting room. I guess that's my only option. Hmm. Hopefully he's still there. Yeah, hold on one second here. Hello. Hey, we can hear you. Hey, All right. Sorry about that. Steph is back. I got a... a Bad connection. It's a little cloudy out here. No, no worries. You, uh, might, you uh, might want to uh, leave your video off just uh, temporarily. Okay. Uh, just might help with the bandwidth issue. Yeah. All right. Yep. Yep. Perfect. Um. So yes, you were saying. Uh, my apologies. Uh. Hold on. Uh, about the uh, where were we? Uh, I had gone from brain to spinal cord, and okay, from. Sorry macrodose to microdose yeah. and right at the end of the microdose jeremy and i noticed that you dropped out so okay. um and i was asking if like you know intuitively what made you think that the big doses would influence consciousness and but you had a different i'll call it somatic or like non-psychiatric way that you wanted to use the substances and you thought that microdosing might be the way that you could tap into these like not brain consciousness benefits, but these like spinal cord bodily somatic benefits. Yes. And so that, that's what I, I realized. Um, since that one time that I did the actual macro dose, um, I have uh, kind of tried to figure out like what good macro dose was because there, there really hmm. was no science on this. But toying around between 250 to 500 milligrams um, you know, the stamets uh, way of uh, what was it three days on two days off you know a multiple different uh, approaches uh, because I really wanted to try and figure out like what kind of benefits so like you said if they're studying to almost kind of reset the brain then my thought was why can't you reset the spinal cord because it's part of the central <laughs> Um, and so, uh, Devin, Devin, real quick, I, I, I gave a, a talk at a scientific conference in, in Sweden in 2022. Uh -huh. And the, I, I repeated a, a rhetorical question the whole time, which was why not the cord? And because I opened the talk saying, look, these substances have a certain actions on the brain. Um, so yeah, that's an amazing, I had no clue that, that, that was the framing that you had. But I oh, had yeah. a very similar, uh, like heuristic framing. Um, that's awesome. Well, it, I mean, it, 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 looking at it from a, a micro dose, uh, even even taking it down. So I think there are many different levels to what psilocybin is potential actually is. Um, you're going to have the level which you're dealing with your anxieties, depression, PTSD. Facilitator and everything else. Then you're going to have situations like mine. So, 
who's needing to more or less kind of rehab um, a big injury. And using a natural uh, substance is going to be, you know, a much better uh, choice uh, in my eyes. And so basically what you're doing is you're just, you're providing the serotonin input, which has been kind of taken away. So you're, you're more or less just providing what the body needs or what it's not being given from up, up top now. Um, and so since I've started microdosing, you know, I've, I've kind of narrowed it down to a hundred milligrams. And so from doing that, um, I still have spasms, but they're a lot less, uh, intense if you will but one of my takes on having those spasms is is that one it's getting my blood flowing uh it's continuing my muscles to kind of you know fire and everything so it's going to lessen uh atrophy muscle atrophy at a, at a slower rate i'm not saying it's going to completely uh stop it but at a much slower rate so um yeah uh and then also to being able to use those spasms to your benefits because you you start to learn, okay, well, if I move this way, it's going to kind of, you know, make it kind of tense up a little bit more. But then you use those to your benefits. Um, but then even beyond that, too, the, the hypotensiveness, um, uh, being in the chair, you know, blood pressure tends to run a little bit lower. Uh, this helps bring it up to a little bit more um, normal um uh, level, if you will, uh, pain, the neuropathic pain, like I'd mentioned, uh, they're doing a lot of studies with the 5-HT2A receptor with neuropathic pain and everything. Well, this, this has that ability to bind to that, giving it that input. Um, and then also there's something to do with the uh, uh, potassium chloride ion channel, KCC2, that one being downregulated, 5-HT being upregulated, applying the serotonin, uh, antagonist or not antagonist uh, agonist and it just kind of helps bring homeostasis back to both of those mm. and again, these are just all my thoughts but it's uh sometimes you know it's just uh uh i was in the navy and one of the adages there was kiss keep it simple stupid <laughs> and so uh, i try and look at some of the simplest uh things possible even taking it down to the um a supplementation level of, uh, you know, mm. maybe even 15 to 30 milligrams because, you know, let's face it, our serotonin levels are going to be based off of diet, exercise, and sunlight, three things that most people are terrible at. And so <laughs> just, I'm uh, in Miami. I get a lot of all three. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, the, um, you know, the, the average person is going to be lacking in all of that. So just – absolutely. From uh, we're we're so fast to supplement, you know, vitamin C, D, uh, take B complexes, you know, all of our different minerals and everything. But when you're talking about a major neurotransmitter, um, the fact that we're so kind of hesitant to uh, address that, and even just in that fashion, um, I almost feel like sometimes we need to take the mysticism out of mushrooms mm, uh, mm. and just kind of look at it for what it truly is and what the true benefits yep. are there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you have this intuition about the spasticity being somehow related to function, um, motor function. That's important. But let me say one thing first. Okay. Um, 
you well, well one question you said heart rates oh, sorry sorry blood pressure my bad spasms did you notice any changes in your body temperature um depends on where you're living but so yeah and, and a lot of that's going to be environmental too that's what yeah, um, yeah exactly uh, i believe and so but you, you have, work out you work out like if you're doing your chest presses would you get hotter if you didn't if you did microdose that day no no okay yeah, okay I, so i'm I'm just bringing these three things, these three things up because um, n- no one is saying anyone listening to this should be attempting this. When Devin says that he's got a dosage, um, that's going to be most likely, I'm guessing, dried mushroom. And you don't know how much psilocybin, the active ingredient, um, at least before it's ingested, it gets changed when it's in your blood. But um, you don't know how much is in there, right? One of the things with medicalizing um, these types of substances is that you finally actually know your dosage. And okay, so the three things that you described there, well, two, I brought up the last one, Devin, at low doses, maybe you can tap into those. At high doses, these things can become dangerous. So the yes. listeners need to know that. And you're um, a autodidactic um, person with probably of well, apparently very high aptitude when it comes to like embodied self-experimentation, right? And so just the listeners should keep that in mind, right? This is not an endorsement of an approach. Um, uh, we, we don't yet know how to do this correctly. And the, the potential benefits that's, that Devin's pointing at, those are all scientifically, uh, theoretically, uh, uh, strongly plausible things that we should pursue. Everything you're describing, Devin, they're little winks from the universe, little hints to us scientists that we should be pointing our attention at this topic. But really importantly, if you go too far, these things can become dangerous very quickly. And I will just say that after a recent paper that we published, me and some colleagues showing anecdotal evidence from internet forums that people with cervical spinal cord injuries are saying that after ingestion of serotonergic psychedelics, there's four different ones. Psilocybin is one of them that they had a serotonin peripherally dominant serotonin like syndrome um, that clustered around the key sign of spasticity that also included hypertension and that also included hyperthermia. And after publishing that paper, we were contacted by a practitioner and that practitioner had a client who was someone with a cervical spinal cord injury and their client had to be hospitalized after a it's in a country where this is a, a, a medical, um, a legal medical uh, therapy after that, that cert person through in a medical context was uh, provided uh, a, a, about six grams of dry psilocybin containing mushrooms hospitalized. So we should all know that there's risk. And um, Devin, I think it's really important that you found that you tuned this in a way and that for the potential somatic benefits to take the mysticism out of the mushrooms, as you say, that that's probably going to be an approach that's way different than how lots of other fields of medicine are approaching these substances. So, boom. Dr. McMillan, what were the other three um, psychedelics that that you guys studied? Hmm. Absolutely. What, what's commonly called the uh, uh, classic serotonergics would be DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which often comes in the form of ayahuasca, but it can be smoked as well. Ayahuasca is when it's uh, taken orally in a liquid form. Uh, you have psilocybin, which comes from the magic mushrooms. Uh, you have LSD, which is usually in a liquid 
blotter or pill form. Most people have heard of this. And then you have mescaline, which is the active ingredient in peyote, which is another kind of like the ayahuasca, uh, an indigenous approach um, that has a long, long history using these substances, um, but that's very difficult to ethically source. Um, so, you know, we're going to think about that as well. Um, so those are the four main ones. Okay. So you, you, I, I do want to, and I, my apologies, Jeremy. Um, I do want to um, expound on what you were talking about there, Dr. McMillan, about the um, uh, serotonin syndrome like uh, symptoms. Mm-hmm. I have experienced these, um, and I and I'm very uh, willing to talk about uh, this as well because people do need to be uh, careful because. One, I don't know how, how people's spasms are going to react. I know that they will have a reaction with spasms. Um, the uh, extreme body heat, uh, mm-hmm. that one, so that was during the summertime, and I had taken mm-hmm. uh, probably, that's when I was still trying to figure it out, so maybe about 500 milligrams. Um mm-hmm. This was not, you know, a bigger dose. This is when I was still trying to figure out what a good daily doses was and everything like that. Um, I went into it was it was probably one of the the longest heat emergencies I'd ever been in. And again, mm. I didn't really know what it was because it wasn't until I experienced it that I had to find out what happened. Same thing with kind of like the spasms. Like, why did this happen to me? And so and that's when I found out that it started affecting body temperature and heart regulation and everything. Mm-hmm. Like that. Mm-hmm. So it's from these experiences that I've had that I've kind of, you know, tailored out. Okay. Well, you know, these spasms, the spasms are caused by, you know, this, you know, you are going to experience, especially since we cannot regulate our own body temperature. So much of it is going to be environmental. Mm-hmm. Um, the time that I did the the really big dose, the the seven grams, <laughs> probably about my peak time, uh, about four or five hours in, um, I was looking for uh, the coldest place in my house, um, mm-hmm. you know. And again, still not understanding what any of all that was, um, but now having a much better understanding of okay, well, yes, these are the risks. These are the things you have to watch out for. Uh, and everything like that. And everybody should um, definitely do their own research and not just go into it lightly thinking that, okay, this is going to be something uh, that's going to, one, change overnight, because it's it's all systematically. I think it's a systematic deal. You got to take these small baby steps. The the spinal cord doesn't heal, um, but what, like a millimeter a day, if that. And so if you're talking Mm -hmm. about a a large um, area, you know, now you're just trying to more or less mitigate some of the other uh, things that go along with a spinal cord injury. Yeah, to, to clarify there, Devin, it's a, a peripheral nerve regenerating in an adult human is one to two millimeters per day. Okay. Um, so, so, so that's a peripheral nerve and they're known for being able to regenerate and uh, the nerve. ones in the cord or not. If we do get to the point of spinal cord nerves regenerating, we might think they would be at about a rate like that. So, okay. Excellent. Totally. But this is, this is, um, uh, this is why I think that this conversation is awesome. Um, I will say from 
my uh, perch here uh, in the ivory tower. Um, I converged on a lot of the same things you did, Devin. And when you sent me that thesis uh, document of yours, and when I heard this podcast episode, um, I was like, wow, there is an amazing, the term we use for this uh, is epistemological convergence. Like we, we came to the same understanding without ever telling each other about those things. And Devin, I bet we were both reading different things as well. So oh. that's usually a signal that um, when multiple minds come to the same thing and they come to it via different routes, it's usually for me, that's a good signal that we should keep going in that direction. So um, that's like a huge part of what I wanted to share today is um, how I think that, uh, well, well, one, uh, you're definitely an amateur neuroscientist <laughs> and, and how I think that, that this path that you're forging, uh, you know, you're an adult. Um, you live in a, in a democratic country. If you want to, you know, uh, inform yourself and, and, and buy the ticket and take the ride. Um, in this case you do so. And when you go on the record and you share this, um, it then, and, and you're open about it and, um, you have this scientific, uh, worldview and this ethos to your approach. Um, I think you're really inviting in and ushering a lot of things, um, like like that talk at Unite to Fight Paralysis, um, like this conversation that we're having right now. So just want to uh, commemorate you for that. And um, and these uh, concepts that you're putting out in the universe, um, these are small, like tiny calls to arms to us scientists uh, to pay attention because in this case, it's both lived experience, strong circumstantial, well, I'll just say circumstantial evidence <laughs> from anecdote um, and theory though and strong theory um that 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 these this is something we should be pointed at like the those three in, independent lines right um so yeah i think that's great well thank you very much sir um i can't tell you just how much of an honor it is to hear that from you uh, i i can't tell you just how much i appreciate that yeah and we will as we do we'll start with safety especially in clinical trials right and as we walk this path, you know, um, always I conduct my research um, advised by people with a lived experience of spinal cord injury. And I hope you'll continue to do so for me and, and for, for, for all the other scientists in our field. Um, and we'll start with risk. But once we map that risk, then maybe some of what you're getting at with that potential reward is, is what we'll start to look at. Because who would care if something was risky if no one ever wanted to do it because there was no potential reward to it right so as we go down that path it takes a long time um we're gonna have to prepare strong arguments for the fda as to why we can do this um but as we do maybe we can check back in every once in a while and put a conversation on the record like this um and you can give feedback on the way that the science is going and the data is looking and stuff like that that'd be awesome yeah i would love that cool. too. that would be great to, to catch up with you guys every so often as well just to uh touch base and see where you're both at um yeah dr mcmillan i'm just curious like i've been kind of infatuated with dmt i've not tried it up to this point um uh -huh. but your study like what kind of negative side effects did people uh deal with from that uh yeah so so there's two two studies we put out um in one of them no one specified having ingested uh, DMT and the other one, I want to say two people 
took it in the oral liquid form that's known as ayahuasca. So I've seen no data of someone with a spinal cord injury smoking DMT to come not completely, but almost completely different uh, uh, experiences you're going to have with that. Um, I will say that um, the reports for spasticity from the oral um, liquid form, um, it was actually one of the people who reported the highest spasticity and hyperthermia, um, cervical spinal cord injury, uh, taking ayahuasca. Um, I can attest to that. I've, uh, I've tested, um, smokable DMT, uh, to kind of see what the reaction would be in that as well. Uh, I've only done one hit from that, uh, mm -hmm. visual set in before the actual physical did. Uh, and, and it is extremely intense. The spasm wasn't as in, eh, it kind of was, especially very short lived, but the hyperthermia, um, was that one was, that one was pretty scary. Uh, just because I took two hits of that one. Uh, only done one hit before took two hits, a, um, a second time and the hyperthermia that set in, uh, and that one set in real fast. Uh, but then again, it was short-lived, maybe five, six minutes. But it was one where I was trying to get as much off of me as possible because I just felt so hot. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so, so the, the duration of effect, Devin's bringing up one of the main differences there. Um, keep in mind, too, Jeremy, with a substance like that, you might enter a state of consciousness where um, – you're completely disembodied. And so you might not even know if you're overheating. So there's just, uh, you know, extra layers to risk there. This, the, these, these are some of the areas where I think, um, you know, De Devin, you, you, you know, bought the ticket, you take the ride and we we appreciate you reporting on that. We're not endorsing any of this. Yeah. Um, but Jeremy, there's certain areas where I'm like, eh, we should probably let the science get there first. Right. Um, that might be one of them. I will say that the highest spasticity that we hear of is with psilocybin, but also that's the most common substance for people to take. So there might be a reporting bias there, but some people are definitely saying, and people that report um, taking multiple of these substances, that the most spasticity they're getting is with psilocybin-containing mushrooms, um, and especially when they contrast that with LSD. So that is, you know, that's not a statistical statement that i made um but me intuiting the patterns in the data um that's what i can tell you now and i guarantee eventually we'll have enough data um from some of the survey studies i have out right now to to put that to the test but that is my guess right now as to how the the chips are going to fall so fantastic well yeah i mean is that so is that a wrap on today's conversation for you guys then you want to we can pick it up uh, at a later date or did you have yeah i thought that was great i, I thought so too yeah. yeah it was great well dr david mcmillan devin colbert i appreciate you guys so much man and we'll we'll definitely do this again um I, i'll try to have more to say next time uh, i was uh <laughs> trying to get out of the way man you guys uh that was that was an incredible uh conversation i appreciate you guys cool well, let's check in every once in a while on this topic absolutely all right guys well we'll uh we'll talk soon cool thank you very much sir all right i want to thank devin colbert and uh dr david w mcmillan for being willing to come on and and discuss this uh 
this very interesting topic. I mean, like I'm, I'm still like, I've listened back to it twice now trying to, before I decided not to edit anything out of it. And uh, it's, my mind is still just blown. So I uh, appreciate those guys coming on and having this, uh, this interesting discussion on the live to walk again show. Live to, live to walk again podcast. Yeah. You know, Jeremy, it, it kind of reminds me, you know, again, the spasms, right. And the dream sequence that we had, um, you know, the, the doctor that we had from the dream research study, Doctor, you know, Parker. and yes. Yeah. Mark. And um, it would be fascinating if you could do this in a controlled way, taking that and induce sleep to see what the effects would be on um, the the uh, movements, the twitching, um, and even maybe if you somehow could measure um, stem cell growth, you know, or growth, nerve growth, nerve ending growth. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. I don't I don't advise trying to sleep on a hero dose of mushrooms. No, 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 no. no. That's why I said totally controlled, totally controlled. <laughs> yeah, that'd probably be tough. That'd be tough. Uh, uh, actually, what I, I would I would really like to know um is <clears throat> where we can find these. Um I, I know what he was saying that, that he was taking around hundred milligrams yeah. a day. Yeah. Um, is he, is he buying like a chocolate or, um, do you know, Jeremy? I do, but I'm not here to confirm or deny. Uh, oh, okay. I, I, I don't know if, yeah, I mean, Devin lives in it. Texas, bro. I'm not trying to put him on blast, but there are, there are places you can get them from. I know of a couple, you can reach out in the DMS. I can, pass there you go. That's what we need to know. I can point you in the right direction. I know a guy. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. But yeah, you know, it's the, yeah, like Ricardo said, you know, we're not, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I definitely, if, if anybody out there wants to try it, I definitely think you should do it in a controlled environment uh, with, with people around you, especially if you're dealing with a spinal cord injury, uh, just to be on the safe side. But um, yeah. Yeah, I have a cousin who went down to Mexico to go do this with with some shaman, um, did a ayahuasca thing, and they don't let you sleep. They don't let you fall asleep at all. Mm -hmm. So um, wow. they keep you awake and they stay with you because um, uh, the overheating and the heat, the hotness and that stuff can happen with them too. Um, I guess uh, you, you can sweat, you sweat it out. Um and so she was telling me that it was um, a mind-altering experience and changed yeah. her life for good, but she doesn't know if she would want to go do that again. So I, I do wish that I had some more recent experiences with psychedelics because in my past, you know, we were looking to do them basically for recreation and fun and, and not for medicinal purposes. So I think, you know, the older you get, um, there is some some different advantages to to doing this um, with a different perspective. I think that's one point that that they're trying to make. Um, if you have an intention of of finding some sort of healing with it, I, I think that that's important. 
Yeah, I agree. Like, yeah, you know, using it for depression, um, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, I, I agree. Um, I, I, like I said, it even kind of got me thinking, is this possible? Will this help people with glaucoma? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Re- regenerate some nerves. So, um, It'd be interesting. I'm going to do some little Google Google searches myself. So, well, yeah, we'll everybody, yeah, everybody, please, you know, listen, like, great review, share the podcast. We we do appreciate it. Um, and open your third eye. Like this is uh, <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to say that I just want. Uh, uh, Doctor McMillan was talking about the studies with DMT and uh, mm. the other ones. I was like, man, I want it. I just want to talk to God, bro, just for a minute. But I don't want to. Yeah. Well, I think that that's for a different podcast, definitely. Uh, but I certainly um, agree with you, Jeremy. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, I just didn't want to sound dumber than I already did. So, um... well, there is some spiritual aspects, and that's what I was trying to point at. Like, there can be some physical healing, but potentially some other benefits from a mental aspect as well yeah i i think so too so yeah and even the placebo effect right there might be even you know some of that going on too so yeah just to to back up the other thing that i thought was really helpful about about him telling the story the original time and then also having um a neuroscientist come on is i i guess they called it an adverse effect with the muscle spasms that he wasn't anticipating that originally. Yeah. Now, um, I think that that's important, uh, obviously, that they're stressing to get that. Like, if you were to, like, Google that, you wouldn't really find that to be a side effect. But technically, so it, it scared him, right? right? So we have to we have to have more people talking about it so that you know um, about it. And what the effect can be. I don't know if they're adverse. It sounds like maybe they're not adverse. They're actually beneficial. I think it could be, yeah. I could try nice. almost like it's trying to retrace, just like Ricardo said, with the uh the sleep dreams. Maybe it's yeah. to like map out like where how to get those connections refiring or something. But mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it just need it needs more it needs more, you know, money going into this line of uh research and yeah. yeah, more coordinated research between the different fields, I think. Exactly. So which 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 senator or congressperson can we talk to in Washington state that that will listen to us? And that's my point of just like the more people that can that can reach out to you, Jeremy, or reach out to the podcast and let us know so we can we can talk to people. And because we do have some connections um, there in the state government, at least. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, we definitely should start with, I mean, we just start locally and start reaching out to our, our local uh, representatives and, and see what we can get from there. But yeah, if anybody has any uh, ideas on how to kind of push this thing forward and, and uh, you know, hopefully get get uh, psychedelics approved for, for treatment for some of these conditions would be amazing, so let's uh let's do that indeed all right guys until next week uh appreciate everyone listening like once again please listen like rate review and share the podcast 
And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with another incredible guest, uh, Danny Keiterling. So um, looking forward to that one. And, and yeah, uh, until then, guys, talk to you soon. Thanks, Jerry. Right. Thank you.